Okay, good evening, everyone. Good evening, Robin. Hello, Bante. Sorry, I got a little bit late there. That's okay. So, tonight we have a quote from the Anguttara Nikaya. Today, sorry, broadcasting live from Stony Creek in Connecticut, August 24th, 2015. Robin, would you mind reading the quote? Oh, sure. Where there is discontent, this woe may be looked for. Whenever, I apologize, I have something weird on my screen. I'm sorry, one moment. Hmm. No, that was it. No, it's blocking part of it. Hmm. Let's see. Oh, strange things happen. I'm sorry about that. Gotta love the live broadcast. When there is discontent, this woe may be looked for. Wherever one goes, stands, sits, or lies, one has no happiness or pleasure. Whether one has gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, to a lonely place, to an open space, or among the monks, one finds no happiness or pleasure. But when there is contentment, this good may be looked for. Whether one goes, stands, sits, or lies, whether one has gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, to a lonely place, or to an open space, or among the monks, one finds happiness and pleasure. Hmm. It's funny. That's not quite what the. Um, it's not quite what the Bali says. He's uh, he takes some 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 liberties with his translations here. Give me a second. Hmm. Hmm. This is a bit of a specific quote. Um, as near as I can tell here. It's between Sariputta and Samandakani. Hmm. Samandakani. Let's see what we know about Samandakani. Hmm. I'm not going to go searching for who Samandakani was, but Samandikani, Samandakani was a, a, a recluse, a non-Buddhist uh, religious person, you might say. And he, this Samandakani, Samandakani asks Sariputta about... In in Buddhism, in Buddhism, in the Dhamma Vinaya of Buddhism, what is happiness? 
than what is suffering. What in Buddhism is happiness and what in Buddhism is suffering? So that's an interesting question. No? Question many people have when they hear the Buddha talking about happiness and suffering. They hear Buddhists talking about happiness and suffering. And the word he uses is not contentment. The word he uses is a curious word. It's um, abhirati, which the dictionary does say can be translated as contentment, but that's not exactly what it means. It's not contentment in general. It's with something. Abhirati. Rati is is enjoyment, and abhi is great or 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 uh, high. Um, but the the, inter the 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 meaning could be contentment with something when you are uh, happy with something or you appreciate something. So the meaning here, I'm pretty sure, has to be not contentment, but when one is content with Buddhism, yeah, content with the meditation, and content with the practice, content with one's practice. Because we have a word for, for neutral contentment, like if someone in general is un, un, uh, what is it, unclinging or unwanting, not wanting of any for anything, it's called santuti. It means, tutti means happiness, and san means like um, already or or without or 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 you know, some means of itself kind of thing self happy sort of but santuti means real contentment when you're you're already happy kind of thing or you're happy by yourself happy without getting anything meaning being contentment abhirati pretty sure means um means one is content, the meaning here is one is content with the practice. So the, he's kind of adapted it and giving, I think, a bit of the wrong impression of the quote. Because the, the question is about, in Buddhism, well, what is it, how, how does one, how do you define, or how do you differentiate a person who is happy, or how do you find happiness? Because how do you find happiness in Buddhism? And Sariputta says, in this Dhammavinaya, Abhirati sukha, anabhiratiya, no, anabhirati ko avaso imang, imasming damavinaya dukha, abhirati sukha. So in this damavinaya, being discontent, or, or it's not even discontent, it's being un, displeased, it's really displeased with the practice, uh, that suffering. And being pleased, this is happiness. Just looking at the commentaries, but it doesn't look like there is a commentary to the sutta. Hmm. 
satisfaction bhikkhu bodhi says or enjoyment he says when there is enjoyment hmm. so he that's the the meaning it isn't contentment it's misleading to say that but enjoyment means when one it's um it's not that one is pleased in the sense of having attachment to it partiality to it it's when one is and this is why he uses the word content because that's the sense here when one is happy to be doing the practice basically or happy to be a monk is is more to the point not more to the point actually the practice whether it be a lay person or or a monastic another good question is in the Nguttu Nikaya why are, is this in the book of tens so what is the yeah so there are ten ways in which one who is discontent, you know, if you're practicing meditation but you're not happy to be practicing it, you know, maybe you're bored with it or you're fed up with it. If you if you can't find reason and and if you can't find uh, inspiration as to why you should be practicing, then you find suffering in ten ways. And so these ten are one. Where is it? One, walking. Walking doesn't find happiness or comfort. Standing, sitting, lying, in the village, in the forest. So this is a um, a neat thing that the Buddha does is point out that it doesn't matter. He does this in different places because people were often critical of the fact that the buddha allowed monks to live in in the villages that they should really live in the forest and everyone a monk should really have to live in the forest and the buddha was clear that that's not the case i mean he didn't i mean the fact that i'm living in the city but that's not what i meant actually it's um but it's important to point out because otherwise we think oh i can't live because i'm not in the forest i can't do this because i'm not living in the forest in order to practice Buddhism, one has to live in the forest. It's an important point that we have to bring up. That no, you don't. No, it has nothing to do with that. If you're not ha if you're living in the forest and you're dissatisfied, and that's what the Buddha is doing here. It's an important point, whether in the village or in the forest, whether at the foot of a tree, in an empty hut, in the open air, whether, or even amongst the bhikkhus one does not find happiness or comfort when there is dissatisfaction this suffering is to be expected but on the other hand when there is enjoyment when one is happy to be doing what one is doing right? all the various aspects of the holy life living in the forest is pleasant living in a village is pleasant another thing is how difficult it is to find, to be pleased or to be to appreciate the forest Right, a lot of people when they go off into solitude, when they're living under a tree or in an empty hut, they they are unhappy. They become bored. They become restless. They need to go back to society. Need to go back to their enjoyment of sensual pleasures. 
or when they're amongst monks, they feel dissatisfied because the monks are boring and and uh, unentertaining, for example. So it's an interesting teaching. I mean, this isn't, again, this isn't the Buddha, this is Sariputta who's saying all of this. But we should take it, you know, Sariputta is not some ordinary person, not even an ordinary enlightened being. He's number two to the Buddha in our teachings, in our tradition. Um, but it's an interesting teaching. There's a... There's, a, there's one place where the Buddha says that it's better to do the right thing, discontent, than to just follow what makes you content. I mean, the word isn't content, what you enjoy, right? They say, do what you love. Well, what if what you love involves pulling the wings off of grasshoppers or torturing small children or, you know? No, doing what you love is... We have this funny... This funny um, saying in English, which some of you may have heard if you if you happen to be familiar with the English, if you ever... If you know anything about the English language, those of you who happen to be able to speak English, um, we have this funny saying, follow your heart. It's an interesting saying. In Thai, they have an interesting saying as well. Follow your heart. No, it's, they don't actually say follow your heart. They say tam jai. But the translation literally would be follow your heart. See, the funny thing is in English it's a good thing. And what you may not be aware of is in Thai it's actually considered a criticism. Someone who follows their heart is not considered to be noble or 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 um, commendable. Someone who follows their heart is someone who is spoiled. Some in Thai, this is the sense. Someone who is undisciplined. Tam jai. Tam jai talat. Tam jai talat could mean you either, you're either just following your whim all the time or it means I am always following your whim. Tam jai talat could mean that I have to always follow your heart, your 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 decisions. But if oneself, tam jai talat, it means you're always just following your whims. It's a criticism. I tell this to the Thai people that, oh, you know, tam jai is a good thing in English. We consider it to be a good thing when you follow your heart. It's a bit ridiculous, you know. It's one of those, one of those uh, easily debunked motivational teachings. Follow your heart, and it's one of the, the profound things, profound aspects of Buddhism is your heart can be wrong. Your gut. Your, in, your intuition can be wrong. I mean, that's kind of a scientific principle, right? You don't follow your heart in science. You don't follow your gut. You assume that your gut could be, you know, 
listening to the pizza that you ate last night or no your gut can be wrong your heart can be wrong because what is the heart it's made up of physical and mental states so uh, can be totally based on lies and misunderstandings so just because you don't want to do something doesn't mean it's not worth doing but i think there's some qualifier that has to be made there we do have the ability to reason and we do have the ability to see clearly so it's not that you have to always be questioning because eventually that becomes uh, false in itself you know well i know this but do i really know this no i mean there, there is a sense that you can truly know something and it's actually pretty easy for example i know that i'm seeing right now that is without question the truth I don't know what I'm seeing. I don't know whether I'm actually seeing this screen and this web camera and this microphone. It might just be my brain. I might be in the matrix and I'm hooked up to this machine that's giving me the stimulus or any number of highly implausible scenarios could be true. But I do know without a doubt that there is seeing and there is hearing. At times there is seeing, there is hearing. So there, these truths are uh, are certain but our judgments of things as being good as being bad these are potentially wrong our judgment of things and in fact in the end it turns out that any judgment whatsoever in the sense of liking or disliking something is misguided because there's no benefit from that comes from liking or disliking in the end there's a realization that those two emotive states don't help us at, at all. So, so what, it, what I was saying is, the Buddha actually says, better to be discontent and do the right thing. So if you practice meditation and it's unpleasant, it doesn't mean it's not worth doing. If you practice meditation and it's difficult, certainly it's worth, still doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Unpleasant also doesn't mean it's not worth doing what it should be is it should be liberating you know it's unpleasant to have to sit through physical pain but in fact you could say that um sitting through it isn't the unpleasant thing the unpleasantness doesn't come from the practice itself and so it's not that you should keep doing something if that thing is in and of itself hurting you because the meditation practice doesn't hurt you. It doesn't hurt you to sit and sit through pain, for example. What truly hurts you, I mean, in, in the truest sense, is your own reactions. Now, that's the problem, is when you do certain, when you, when you attempt to be objective, you will suffer, not because of the act of being objective, but you will suffer um, because of your mind's reactions and your mind's um, inability to accept certain phenomena. Like normally we're subjective, we're, we're non-objective, but that doesn't make us suffer because we avoid that which we don't like, right? We run away from it. And by running away from it, we avoid the potential suffering. So by 
um, being objective, we stick with that which we dislike, but the disliking still comes up in the beginning anyway. I mean, we're not when we're truly objective, but when we make an attempt or when we undertake the practice of trying to become objective, it can be quite displeasing. Hmm? And so that's what Sariputta is referring to here. And you don't want to get the sense that Sariputta is saying that you should stop practicing because you're discontent. But that's the point is once you're doing something to try and see the truth, how do you find happiness in it? Or how do you succeed in it? The, the, the only, you're doing the right thing. You know, you're taking to practice, but you still are worthy of criticism because you haven't found happiness in it. So if the meditation is not bringing you happiness, and this is what we could say of vipassana meditation, insight meditation, meditation based on the four foundations of mindfulness, if it's not making you, bringing you happiness, you, what you have to see and the claim that has to be made, the claim that we would make, is that it's your own fault if you're not happy. So meditation, we say it's not pleasant all the time, but the meditation itself is not to blame. You are to blame. We are to blame with the fact for the fact that the meditation brings us suffering. It's because we are still reacting to those things that we should be objective about, that we're trying to be objective about. And once we're truly objective, we find peace we are free from that suffering. So we come to be, you can say, content with what we're doing. We're able to be content no matter what we're doing, standing, walking, sitting, lying, when we're alone, when we're together, when we're in the village or in the forest, etc. But it's inspirational, this idea of finding contentment. You know, contentment, and uh, but the meaning is your contentment with the practice, contentment with the holy life, if we want to use a common phrase, so the spiritual life. Spiritual life is something that's hard to be content with, truly spiritual life, not the sort of, you know, new agey, I don't know whether it's wrong to use that word, but this kind of spiritual life where you just enjoy everything and you know, live a, he he it's kind of a hedonistic spiritual life is a common thing. It's not what it's meant here. People think, well, you know, my spiritual life is lots of, I, I listen to music, I dance, I'm spiritual. No, this isn't what we mean by spiritual life. The true spiritual life, you know, a lot of people look at it and kind of think it's not very much fun. Um, but true spiritual life, but true spiritual life is simply being able to be alone, being able to be quiet, not requiring anything to make you happy. You know, true spiritual existence i mean it's hard it's hard to find that contentment it's hard to be content being alone not needing anything not having to jump up and make a sandwich or have a drink of uh, i don't know the drink or let's turn on the music or turn on the television it's difficult not to do that so Anyway, that's the quote for tonight. And so I think he's missing, he's, he's, he's okay with the translation, but he's missing an important part here that I think is a bit misleading. It's not contentment, which is it's also a very good teaching, but that's not where this teaching, this teaching actually means something a bit different. It's also not the words of the Buddha, but that's nitpicking because Sariputta is 
right up there anyway. Okay, anyway, shall we do some questions? Sometimes it's harder for me to meditate than others. Should not each be easier each time I do it? No. No, I mean, you have to look more at the um, macro, the macro level and the micro level. Like if you look at the stock market, I, mean, I think there was the stock market was in the news today, right? Uh, the stock market goes up and down like this. If you look at it, you say, is the stock market going up? Well, if you look at it at one moment, it goes up and then it goes down, goes up and then it goes down or so on like that. And it's hard to say, but over time, you see it goes up or it goes down, right? There's a trend. And that's that kind of that the analogy is that in meditation practice it should be similar, and that's an important point because otherwise you become discouraged. Why is this practice not as good as the last practice? Why is this day not as good as the last day? There are so many factors that contribute to that. I mean, what were you doing today? And furthermore, what is contributing to this day? Sometimes things we did a week ago come back only to haunt us today, right? Not everything is immediate results. So you're going to have ups and downs. Your body is going to change. You know, maybe your body is giving you problems and it's making your brain you know, pump out different kinds of chemicals than it pumped out yesterday. Uh, maybe your food is, is impacting your practice or food that you ate yesterday or even a week ago potentially is now coming to upset the balance. I mean, many, many different things. It could even be maybe the stars are aligned in such a way today that cosmic energy, I don't know, I mean, it's probably far-fetched, but they say that, you know, people do, some people do believe that astrology, the stars, you know, the tides, right? Some people say that the, the month, right? There's the month's uh, cycle and the full moon. They say something about how on the full moon there's more crime. Is this right there are statistics that show and and whether that has anything to do with the full moon itself or i don't know i mean maybe it's just seeing the full moon but or maybe it's having a full moon to do the evil deeds by but could also be the tides and the you know gravity for example the point being any number of things you know realistic some probably have nothing no are not non-factors but there are definitely many factors to do with how you feel right now that's the micro level. You have to be more patient and have a more of a macro look, which is also difficult because it's you. And you know how you feel right now, but do you really remember how you felt a year ago? I mean, do you really can you really compare how you are now to how you are a year ago? Often it's much easier to let your teacher or your friends be the judge. And and that that often works with friends, for example. They'll say how you've changed. They'll say, gee, you 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 seem like quite a different person. You, you, you seem much more quiet, much more calm, much more content. This is what meditators often hear. Um, th this process is sped up by, accelerated by intensive practice. So people who have finished a meditation course, if they did a, few, a week or two weeks or three weeks, 
then at the end of the course you should see a real difference you'll see the difference on two levels one is a temporary level you've gained concentration which is only temporary and so you'll feel more peaceful you'll go back to the world and you'll look at things quite differently sometimes you find it difficult to fit back into the world because your level of concentration is so high that everything seems so you're kind of disconnected from it that's from any meditation that has nothing to do with insight it's a benefit that comes from being focused you might also feel at the end of the course kind of um, unable to handle the world because you've become sensitive you've opened yourself up to receive stimuli without protecting yourself without um, preparing yourself and so when strong you know because everything is so refined when you're in a meditation center but when you leave there's such jarring uh, experiences but that's on the one level that has to do with the temporary states the with the real benefits so when you leave the center is that over time like when you've done a meditation course you'll see that you're able to be more objective about things you'll see that you're no longer reacting immediately when someone attacks you you no longer immediately attack with uh, react with anger you when you experience something unpleasant you no longer immediately need for it to leave when you experience something pleasant you no longer no longer need to immediately chase after it and find that you're more able to be at peace and centered in yourself but that's much more noticeable i mean the changes in general are much more noticeable through intensive practice so if you're just doing daily practice you have to be you know realistic in the benefits to expect and again as i said looking for benefits can be detrimental in itself if you're uh of an of, of the habit to look and see and question whether you've actually gained anything from the practice that in and of itself is going to hinder your your practice which i think sounds a bit like a cop-out kind of say kind of leading people to think you know what is this is this just a fake here you're, you're telling people not to not to expect uh, benefits from the practice kind of just a means of hooking people into something out of blind faith but no that's not the case you because we trick ourselves into doubting the the benefit that you should and can can and should see for yourself is right here and right now every moment you should feel you should clearly experience a clarity of mind an untying of knots it should feel like you've got this knot and you've just gone you've just solved the puzzle every moment you're, you're you're fixing something like something is crooked and you you fix it or there's some like some stickiness something you like you dropped uh, some some soda or some something sugary and it's there's a sticky mess and then you take some water and the sugar dissolves and and it should it should feel like a dissolving suddenly freedom you know no longer jumbled no longer tangled no longer messed up you should feel that every moment when you're mindful when you truly get the practice just for a moment you feel a bit better like you've just done something right and that's undeniable unquestionable that you just did something right and then it's gone that was one moment so then you have to do it again and when you are able to do that repeatedly this is what leads one to become enlightened but that's where the real benefit lies that's it it, it changes you and it sets you 
on the course to build up positive habits. So that's what we're looking for. That's what you should be able to see. If you find that, try to convince yourself. Try to you know show yourself, remind yourself. You know, look, I can see it's working. Forget about how I'm changing as a person. How are you going to see that? First of all, it's you know up and down all the time. You're, the changes are going to come slow but steady. And second of all, even when the changes do come, well, you should be able to have people, people will say to you, well, no, they notice a difference. You yourself should be able to remark that you feel stronger. You should notice that you're able to deal with things better. But it's you have to be careful not to dwell on that and not to live for you know good experiences. Oh, I was so happy there. That means I'm progressing. Or, oh, today I was depressed. That means this meditation is useless. No, it doesn't. It just means you have the potential still to get depressed from time to time. It'll get better. Eventually that will go away. It will recede. When doing walking meditation, do I pay the same attention to thoughts and feelings that I would during sitting meditation? For instance, feeling wobbly and unbalanced? In walking, we do tend to uh, make allowance for minor disturbances, meaning you can just ignore them and come back to walking because it's more complicated to, it's more difficult or disruptive to stop walking and acknowledge you're in the middle of walking. If something is a little bit disruptive, you can just bring your attention back to the feet and keep going. If it's a lot disruptive, like it's, it's actually disruptive of your practice, like here I'm wobbling every step and I feel you know, maybe um, dis unbalanced, then you can stop and acknowledge the feeling. You know, if it's a general feeling of, of unbalanced, of poor balance. But feeling unbalanced and wobbly, more you would focus on something, because you'd have to focus on something that would last when you actually stop, because you you don't want to be noting and moving as well, unless you're actually noting the movement. So if you just feel unbalanced, you can just ignore it and, and continue on. But if you feel generally uh, you know, unstable, then you would acknowledge it. But to th And to thoughts is the same. If you have a stray thought, you can just ignore it and come back to the foot. But if it's a persistent thought where you actually have something on your mind, then you should stop and say thinking, thinking, or liking, disliking is appropriate. What should I do at times when I feel I lack the conviction to practice? Think about the Buddha. It's supposed to be a good one. Uh, think about death, I suppose. Think about the fact that the future is uncertain, but death is certain. You're going to have to eventually come to terms with who you are. And the question is, are you prepared for, who, for that coming to terms? You know, are you prepared for death? Have you lived your life as best, in the best possible way? Being around other meditators, um, using internet meditation communities to, to bolster your practice. That's a joke, but no, not really. I mean, as you can see, this is helping us, right? Yes. This, this community bring, is a easy way. Whoa, we've got a huge list tonight. What you may not have noticed, uh, if you didn't notice yet, if you reload the page, 
if you've got a check mark beside your username, I think you can now click on your checkbox and it may turn into a heart. <laughs> Which is, I mean, you can do it on the Android app already. I just did it and it didn't work. But I've already got a heart behind, beside one of them. Let's see. No. I think it only works. It doesn't work now because I I'm waited too long. There, Mason did it. It just worked on a PC. Robin did it, yeah. I can't do it anymore because my, my, it's too old. It has to be within the past hour. If you've finished within the past hour, you can click on your checkbox and put a heart there, which means you're, you're sending meta. Now there, everyone's doing it. This is new. This just came into effect tonight. So Very now nice. it works. Didn't, didn't you have it before where if you long pressed on the start button? It that's in the Android app. It doesn't work on the website. Oh, okay. You can't long press on the start menu here, I don't think. Oh, I don't know. I, I almost always use the Android app other than when I'm sitting here. So No, there's no long press oh, for JavaScript. Okay. You could implement one, but... <laughs> Dedicated Android user. Hmm. Are members of the Noble Sangha, Sotapanna, Sakadagami, Anagami, and Arahat alive today? If yes, how common are they? Tens, hundreds, thousands? How do you judge whether someone is a sotapanna? I don't. I don't know if I'm, if if it's proper to answer this question, because what would it mean if I said yes, there are hundreds and thousands? What would that be saying about me, in a way that I can't talk about myself, for example? You know. I don't think that's a question that that can easily be that can by a monk be answered. We can say, I mean, skirting around it, we say that uh, the, the path is open. You want to find out if there are sotapanna, sakitakami, anagami, arahat, you do it for, look for yourself, practice for yourself. Take the time to do a meditation course in a place that you trust and and find reasonable and see how far you can get. That's more important than whether there are hundreds or thousands of these sorts of people. How would you know? How would you know whether someone else was? No, they don't work. They don't. There's not a. They don't tattoo on their forehead. It's not quite like that. You do get, you can get a sense of the differences between people, you know. You can get a sense of whether someone is truly, but, but you know, it's hard to get that sense if you haven't gained spiritual um, benefit yourself. How could you get that sense? It's easy to get the wrong sense. It's easy to be misled. It's easy to get a sense, but it's also easy to be misled with that sense. I mean, Sariputta, there's a story of Sariputta sitting, teaching a monk how to meditate. Then the, while he's teaching him, the monk becomes an arahat. And Sariputta keeps teaching him, keeps trying to explain to him, thinking, you know, not realizing that he's become an arahat. I mean, how would Sariputta know? The Buddha knew. The Buddha knows and the Buddha looks at this and... He, he finds it remarkable. 
in a sort of way. Any more questions? Yes. Does being content with your discontent make one content? That's Ali. I saw him. Ali, are you still here? Ali's a good friend from Winnipeg. And he has a YouTube channel, shameless plug, uh, Meditation in Persian. So if you know, and you know what Persian, Persian is Iranian. So he does meditation videos for people using the Persian language, for Iranian people, which is, you know, awesome and, and unique. Um, Ali, feel free to put the link in the chat if you'd like. If not, you can, you don't have to, but I think it's worth seeing. I helped him do his first couple of videos. So, a good friend from Winnipeg. He's visited me here in Stony Creek. And I haven't answered his question yet. Being content with your discontent make one content. I don't think it's the goal to be content with your discontent. Being content with something, it's, a, it's slippery because we're not actually talking about ultimate reality when we say these things. Being content with your discontent is slippery. What exactly is useful is seeing your discontent objectively. This is the language we have to use, seeing it objectively. People always go the next step. When you start to explain meditation as seeing things objectively, they say, oh, so you mean like being okay with it, being content with it. I had this problem on the plane with coming back from British Columbia. I was trying to explain to this guy who had done a Vipassana course in the Goenka tradition. I was trying to explain to him the practice, and he kept saying, you know, so it means being content, or, or what was he saying? Uh, accepting. Now, he used the word accepting, and I said, well, it's not quite accepting, because the word accepting has problematic connotations. Accepting could mean that you, you're okay with it. You think this is perfectly valid behavior, right? If you're discontent, that's bad. It's not good. And so in a sense, you should throw it away. You should abandon it. And the words that they often use are abandoning, discarding. Bahana means uh, to abandon or to discard. Um, yeah, there's Ali's YouTube channel, and it doesn't linkify. I think if you put HTTP in front of it, it would linkify. Anyway. And you can see who Ali is. He's also, Ali, oh, you have to, he's, he's, he's in this, in, he's involved with the skeptics. So a lot of you people, who, if you like the sort of things I say, you love what he said. He, he did this awesome video um, on how in order to be, or was that the video? He's done a he's done a TED talk. Ali's kind of famous. He did a TED talk, TEDx, I think. But uh, so he's involved with the skeptics, and he said said something that will always stick with me. He said, in order to be a skeptic, um, you have to meditate. You can't truly be a skeptic if you're not meditating. The rationale being, to be a skeptic. You have to, and I hope I'm getting this, I hope I'm not misrepresenting him, but it's brilliant. In order to be a skeptic, you have to see things clearly, right? To be a skeptic, you have to be truly unbiased. 
that's the the idea of the skeptic is to reserve judgment to not prejudge until so the skeptic means having your judgment rely perfectly on science you know in in other words on observation empirical evidence you know true evidence whatever that is if you haven't meditated you can't do that an ordinary person is full of biases this what this means is your mind has to be perfect in order to be a true skeptic your mind has to be perfectly clear the only way and we don't have that ability where can you possibly get where can you get this ability how can you possibly just assume this 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 stance you know you can't you you are full of conflicting desires and and biases and and so on which is why we rely so much upon uh, double blind tests and and um, third person peer review that kind of thing because we don't trust ourselves and rightly so because we're not trustworthy but we 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 tend to overlook the fact that it's possible to become trustworthy it's possible to get to the state where you should be able to trust your own observations and and that's through the practice of meditation so because skeptics are often very much well they're usually atheist which is cool because we're atheist as well but they're also skeptical of of meditation they say meditation is good for relaxation i had a huge argument with some uh, youtube skeptics or quote unquote or atheists um and they were they were just ridiculing the idea that meditation could possibly be a means for discovery of truth no anyway so um ali feel free to if you did have a link to that video i would appreciate uh link link to your ted talk maybe um i'd appreciate it because i know a lot of people here like that sort of thing it's a reason why they follow me i think did i answer the question fully or was there more to say yeah so it's not so much about being content um you, you become unmoved by your discontent means you don't react to it but that doesn't quite mean content it means un unmoved by your discontent because when you're truly unmoved by it and maybe unmoved is not even fair because unmoved can be through ignorance but um when you're objective you have to say it you, you have to be very careful of your language and stick to the orthodox language otherwise you run into problems when you say you're content with something immediately you run the risk of having people understand that they should it's okay you know i'm angry and that's fine i'm an angry person i just get angry it's better than feeling guilty about your anger because the guilt is a whole other layer but it's on the other hand dangerous because no it could be even worse than feeling guilty because it can lead you to big angry full out you think it's fine you know this is who i am gonna go all out if you don't like the fact that you're angry then at least you have the the um check that is going to keep you from going full out you know you want to yell at someone if you're content with your mm, anger then you're going to go full out if you're discontent with it well then the discontent on top of discontent is problematic but at least it's going to prevent you from going full out so discontent is dangerous 
Con the words content and discontent, better not to, it's not quite the right terminology in my mind. But it's slippery, it's hard to say exactly what is meant. Thank you for the link. Everyone bookmark the link. And right after this, you should all go and watch. I'm relatively new to Buddhism and was wondering where I should begin in the Buddhist teaching and where to go from there. So I'm wondering, where is this? I'm wondering, relatively new, where I should begin, right? And where I should go from there. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I guess I'd recommend meditation. I don't think, I think you have to be careful to just j dive in or pick up an introduction to Buddhism because who's to say that introduction to Buddhism is the, the best one, right? There's got to be tons of different, um, tons of different introductions, all giving you different ideas. There's one really good introduction or fairly good introduction that we usually recommend called What the Buddha Taught. It's a book. I don't think it's on the internet. You probably have to buy it. But it's a fairly good book. I don't like some of the things he says. I'm not convinced. Like he says, um, the Buddha said life is suffering. Or the first noble truth is that life is suffering. The first noble truth is not that life is suffering. That's not at all. In fact, the one thing that the Buddha says is the Buddha omits from the list of what is suffering is life. Life is not suffering. Death is suffering. Birth is suffering because it's you know painful and stuff. And also traumatic. And etc., uh, etc. Et Sickness is suffering, but the Buddha never. So, my point here: you have to be careful. Even with a good introduction, you may potentially get the wrong idea. So, I wish I had. A, I can't think off the top of my head a good book that I truly believe is a proper introduction. So, in order to bypass that, figure out for yourself what are the core elements of buddhism and then you can expand it you know get a sense of truth for yourself we take we take it as a given that buddhism is about finding the truth right so get a sense of the truth even just a basic sense it doesn't have to mean you become enlightened but get a basic sense of the truth for yourself and to do that practice meditation so if you want my advice take my book <laughs> how to meditate or a book like it Mahasi Sayada has some great books. He's a monk who, who passed away about 35, 33 years ago. Take his book, his books um, on practical vipassana meditation and start practicing. Just look and use this technique to see what's going on and then start reading the actual teachings of the Buddha. They're all over the internet. Find a good translation. The best translations are by Bhikkhu Bodhi, which again, unfortunately, are not freely available. They are, but they're not legal. Um, so you have to find them or find someone who can let you borrow or, or give you, well, you know, hey, maybe there's a link to them somewhere on the internet. Um, but find Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations or any, you know, there's some other good free online translations as well. And start reading because you'll find that that's, uh, the practice as a background gives you 
the ability to decipher the, the teachings. People who haven't practiced, I think, have a hard time uh, understanding the teachings. It's why you have so many fake Buddha quotes out there, because nobody can really pin down what the Buddha actually said. He wasn't very quotable. His teachings, there's some good quotes, but there's not as many as we would like, right? He's not quotable. He doesn't say something that makes you feel good. He gives you this much and blows your mind, but it's not something you can put on Facebook. It's not something that makes a meme, right? It's not memeable. Some of the Dhammapadas are kind of memeable. Some of them, but not as much as not as much as other other sorts of similar teachings. Yeah, you know, mostly, I've tried, I've tried mostly quoting fake. the Dhammapada. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mostly fake Buddha quotes. Yeah. Fake Buddha quotes are much better than real ones in, in terms of quotability. But, but you they, can tell that they're fake. Yeah, you can tell that the Buddha would have never said such a thing. It's it's a feel-good teaching. Or, yeah. Some some of the fake quotes are actually very Buddhist. Some of them. The Buddha never said that, but it does sound Buddhist. So that, that happens. But often they're just imprecise. You can't say that. You can't pin it down to one thing. It's more complicated than that. The truth is not quite so simple. I'm not sure if this question is for you or for Ali. Um, Ali, is this like pyro? Whoops. Pyronian. Is this like Pyronian skepticism, suspension of judgment? Yes, I believe. I don't know. I don't know that his TED talk or his this these talks are actually about being skeptic. Maybe that's the first one he put. I think the TED talk wasn't specifically about being a true skeptic. So. Uh, yeah, Ali did a 17-day solitary meditation. Good guy. Good to see him. Nice to see him here. Thanks for showing up. Okay, we have a follow-up question regarding um, the members of the noble Sangha. Sangha. If we have no evidence of the existence of members of the third gem, noble Sangha, do we take refuge on faith alone? Hmm. Taking refuge in general can be based on faith alone. I mean, how do you take you take it on faith that the Buddha actually existed? I mean, we have in the text we have that the Buddha existed. We also have that this Arahant Sangha has existed. Um, so they're both equally taken on faith until you actually practice the teachings and say, "Whoa, this kind of teaching is not ordinary." People who teach this are special in some way and so then you get an appreciation for them actually existing but the sangha is more appreciation of those those levels of attainment you know so you if you haven't attained them you have to still take it on faith that such beings exist or that such states are possible but you're paying respect to the um the attainment really the level of attainment, not an individual person. What did we learn in the in the in our study of the Visuddhimagga? It does it does touch upon this this idea. I think what is the sangha? It's about the qualities. When you practice sangha nusati, you're practicing mindfulness of the qualities of what makes a person worthy 
You know, a lot of it's about being worthy. Ahunayo, pahunayo, dakinayo, anjali karaniyo. Worthy of all these things, worthy of gifts, worthy of appreciation, worthy of salutation, worthy of reverence. I thought if we said life is running, it's describing something life is doing. Life is suffering because that's what life is doing? No. Life is not suffering. See, one, one reason why that's an important distinction is because Nibbana is called Amatta. It's not called death. It's called the unde undead, undeath. We had this fun conversation or discussion on Stack Exchange about the word amatta, which is often translated as deathless, but that's not what it literally means. It literally means undead, um, state of being a zombie. No, no, undead. But the meaning is basically deathless. And there's a Dhammapada quote, a Dhammapada verse that is, I think, probably fairly quotable. Ye pamatta yatha matta. Uh, those who are negligent are as if already dead. Appamada namiyanti. This is the part that I meant to refer to. Appamada namiyanti. Appamatta namiyanti. The people who are unintoxicated, who are not negligent, who are heedful, never die. Namiyanti, never die. Right? So in a, in essence, he's talking about eternal life, which is misleading. It's a misleading term, and it, it's it's wrong to think of it as we normally would think of eternal life. But it means no longer being subject to death. So I don't know. Maybe that's a red herring. Maybe that's problematic in and of itself. But I do know that we tend to place life as being somewhat special. Now, if you look at it from the point of view of Abhidhamma, then we have what is called the Jivit Indriya, which is the faculty of life, and that's physical life, that it, or its existence life. It's life in samsara, life that has arising. Now, that life does cease, and so there is that. And that life faculty... I think you'd say has to be included in the truth of suffering. So technically, the life faculty is a part of the truth of suffering. But on the other hand, the life faculty is a quality. You'd be better off saying it's a quality of rupa. Rupa has a life, or rupa uh, occurs... Um, due to or based on or, or invo being involved with the life faculty. The life faculty is a product of the continuation of, of rupa, I think, or is it nama? Jibhidindriya, I think, is physical. I'm not sure. Pretty sure it's physical. And so um, we're talking about physical uh, life. Uh, but the, the rupa itself is, is part of the dukkha satya because it's impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. But jivitindriya is only a quality of that rupa. Anyway, 
don't do it. It's, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say because it certainly turns people off of Buddhism and it's misleading. Buddhism isn't about saying that life is suffering. It's about identifying what is causing you suffering. It's identifying what is unsatisfying. You could say existence is made up of entirely of suffering. <laughs> it doesn't sound much better. But don't say life is suffering. You don't have to. It's not necessary. It's not helpful. Oh, wow. What the Buddha taught is online. I think I knew that. I think I downloaded that PDF file once. Hopefully that's a good PDF file. I, I read a PDF file, and hopefully it's not that one, where you could tell it was the real book, but then someone had added something to it. <laughs> it was like this this list of suggestions, and it, you could just tell it was not part of the original book. It was so completely different from stylistically, and it was, you know, one of these kind of modern, uh, you know, take lots of vacations, hug your children. It was just completely out of out of place. So hopefully that's not it. But you know, I think meditate first is a better idea, and then start reading. And we talked about this last night, right? What are some good books? The Nyanamoli book. Does anyone know the name of that book exactly? Does anyone recognize what I'm talking about? Nyanamoli. Is that the heart, the heart of Buddhist meditation? The Word of the Buddha. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is it. Wow, it's online. See, let's look this over, and if anyone is interested, let's get together and... Let's do this as a screenplay. No, this isn't it. No, it's not the word of the Buddha. It's the life of the Buddha, I think. Nyanamoli, life of Buddha. The word of the Buddha is something, I think, different. The life of the Buddha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Composed entirely from texts of the Pali Canon. I don't think that's correct. Is this it? They are presented in a framework which serves to connect. Da, 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 da. No, maybe that's not it either. I think it is. I think that is it. Oh, and it's available free from Pariyatis. Let's see if this is it. So I want to bring this up in case anyone's interested in helping. I put a link in meditation. Is that it, Bhante? Yeah, this is it. Which one? Wait. I just found it, so... Yeah, that's probably it. It's also available on Pariyati for free. So go to Pariyati, by all means. Mm -hmm. Pariyati is this neat store that... They follow the Goenka tradition, but we can forgive them for that. think it's the same thing that you you put but wow that that's online so okay look through that see here's in the introduction narrator one oh no this is a description of them. the birth and early years narrator one indian history actually begins with the story of the no, that's not right. anyway but this is narrator one is him right narrator one is a commentator that's him number two 
is narrator two is usually Buddhaghosa. First voice is Elder Ananda, so this is the actual suttas. Second voice is Ubali from the Vinaya. Third voice is later things on the second council. Yeah, and then there's the chanter who is extra. But so mostly narrator one narrator one is him, narrator two is the commentary, commentator, commentary. First voice is getting into the suttas. Thus I heard. On one occasion the blessed one was living at Savati. So we could um we could go through this whole book. It's a long book. And we could each pick a voice. And we could put it together, find someone to stitch them all together, and make an ebook out of it. Uh, no, an, what do you call it? Not an ebook, audiobook. Anyway, that's something worth reading because it's very canonical. Yanamoli did have some interesting, strange translation choices, but but he was brilliant. One of the masters of language. He was a monk in Sri Lanka but born in Germany and uh, just a master at, of you know, just such clarity of language. Anyway, I think that's um, that's it then, no? I think so. Let's put it. Oh, so we have, do we have news today? What's our news today? Uh, we've, there's a new video up and there's a new, Robin, thank you for putting up the new update for the, you wanted to say something about the, the project? Sure, we're just um, updating the Ucaring project because um, while it was originally intended to take place in January, it's it's now actually taking place a lot sooner. The lease is signed and Bhante will be moving into the new monastery within the next week or two. So everything is updated, although I haven't attached your new video. I haven't even seen your new video yet. Uh -huh. So I'll watch that and add it to the campaign. Did you see my link to it? I did. I, I just hadn't checked my emails before, so I will do that now. Manbina says, heartiest congratulations. I'm so happy and excited. It's good news. I'll try coming this weekend to see you. Would love to hear all about it. Manbina's a friend from Toronto. One of, She's actually was on the board or sort of is on the board of directors, but she's just so busy with her own um, life that... She hasn't been involved much. Good to see her this weekend. Yeah, I mean, links are important. We should have maybe a, a link section, recommended links on the site that have nothing to do with us, but that we recommend. Like, definitely life, The Life of the Buddha by Nyanamoli, Mahasi Sayada books. I've got a whole, we've got a whole bunch on our website in e-book e 
format. They're not very good ebook. They were made along. They were made by batch, and I think there's some errors in them and stuff. But there's the HTML files from Mahasi Sayadaw that are pretty good. We should have links to that, right? Links to the Mahasi Sayadaw folder on our website. Oh, okay. Um, and links to things like this. You know, we should maybe have a. Um, where can I get you know? Where can I get basic information or something like that on Buddhism, Mahasi? You know, uh, this tradition of meditation. Uh, I don't know what else. Are you looking for links to to other sources or to your own static collection there? Well, that's the Mahasi stuff. Is we've got it already, so you don't need to necessarily look elsewhere for it. But like these links that we've just put, the link to Life of the Buddha would be if people are looking. A sec, we could have a section on general Buddhism, which we don't have. We don't have any sure. information about that. But what we recommend, Life of the Buddha, I think is worth recommending. And I could add links to it, like the three cardinal discourses on access to insight, way of mindfulness, which is on access to insight. But that might be under a different section. So links to these on our website, I think, would be quite useful because good information is out there, but there's also a lot of not so good information. I mean, from our point of view, less good information that we would consider to be potentially misleading. And you'll get recommendations from all sorts of different people. Sirimongolo knowledge base, there you go. We had a wiki at one point. We could do wiki.sirimongolo.org and put up MediaWiki. The problem with MediaWiki, like the Wikipedia software, you can just put it on your website. The problem with it is it is so, um, it attracts bots like nothing else. So spam, you end up with so much spam because they're looking for it all over the world. They're looking for this software. So you can use other types of wiki software that are less susceptible to spam just because they're less popular. But a wiki might be interesting. One question on what happened to your pseudo st study series. Which one is that? The one where we chanted the suttas first and then studied them? I'm not sure. I'm, I was thinking about the chanting that we did, and I don't know how interesting it was for others, but it was fun for us because, you know, monks do evening, morning and evening chanting, and I've always felt like, you know, why aren't we actually chanting some really cool stuff? So me and this Samanera in, in Winnipeg, we just, every evening, we, st we would just chant a, Majima, a sutta from the Majima Nikaya, and we went in order. We didn't really get into it, and it was at a time where, you know, things were kind of unsettled, so... I don't think we were that into it, but it was it was really great for me to be able to have an excuse to read the Pali. That'd yeah, be nice well. for for our Pali class, but it, the problem would be if everyone had their mic open at the same time, the, no, the reverb would be You have to chant horrible. it live. Everyone else can chant along, but they chant without microphone. Yeah. That's like it when was. we take the precepts. But yeah, um, I've actually recently been thinking about that, and at our new place, that's probably what I'll do, you know, for chanting. I have to incorporate it into my daily schedule. Do I mean, here we do chanting, and I don't always take part, but at 7 p.m. they have chanting in the Cambodian tradition. But, you know, again, it's just mainly devotion, and... 
asking forgiveness. I like the asking forgiveness part. And I like the devotion part. That's pretty simple. They chant the same suttas every we night. Before we got to the Satipatthana Sutta. Yeah, okay, we'll pick it up again. I need a co-conspirator. Doing it alone is problematic because you you have to take a breath every so often. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'm happy to pick that one up. At least I've got one person who's interested. That's a good sign. I think the chanting would be cool. I, I chant along with YouTube videos. It's good practice. You can see what they're like. They're on YouTube. It would be like... Uh, Eva me sutang e kang samayang bhagava Savati yang viharati jetavane anata pindikasa arame Tatrako bhagava bhikkhu amante si Something like that. And then after that, we would study it. We would go through it and in in the we'd go through the English translation and we actually put it up on the Google Hangout, right? We're using screen share. If we did our poly class on Google Hangout, we could have ten people chanting at the same time. You can't do live chanting like that because no. I don't think there's always a delay. The delay you don't notice it now, but you'd notice it if you tried to sync it up. Because you'd constantly be adjusting for each other, and you'd say, "I think we tried it once, actually. Pretty sure there's no way that could work." Well, definitely not if people were watching, because there's that thirty-second delay. But I don't, know, I don't notice a delay in the hangout. But you would notice it, like if you and I were to try to chant together. Do you know any chanting? Do you want to try? Let's try Namotasa together. Sure. Namo Tassa. Well, see, I'm I'm waiting for you. Yeah, but yeah, but I had already, I had I I could tell that. Yeah, okay, let's try it. Okay. You'll see, it's not gonna work. Namo Tassa. Bhagavato Arahato Samma. See, we're waiting for you. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Waiting for each other. I I start waiting for you. If I don't listen to you, it would work, but it wouldn't work because uh, people at home would would see us out of sync. We'd think we were in sync, or you'd think we were in sync. I'd hear that we weren't in sync, and the people at home would hear that we weren't in sync. You How do people do this live? You don't do it live. You, you do it live, no, but everyone mutes their mics. No, no, I mean just in, like at a temple in real life. Ah, well, in real life, it's it's practically instantaneous. It's the speed of sound is the delay. But here we have a, we have a, at least a half a second, if not a second, delay between the two of us. Okay. Sounds <laughs> like Peter Gabriel. I assume Peter Gabriel is someone who uses a lot of delay in his audio. Uh-oh. We have to talk to Jeff. I hope he's getting these emails as well. 
just got an email from the IR from about the IRS. What the heck do we have to do with the IRS? Hmm. Anyway, something for Jeff to look at, not me. Okay, that's all. On that note, our failed attempt at chanting together. <laughs> Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night. See you tomorrow. Thank you, Bhante. Good night, everyone. Thank you, Robin. Good night. Good night.